and welcome back to the second episode of the Full Dusty Jacket Podcast, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my old college friend, Sean. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Sam? Good, man. Hey, Sean, what do you call the second episode of something? So, like, all right, so we, we know, you know, so you know how like, they have, there's a name for some reason for the second to last episode of a season, which they call penultimate Right. Mm-hmm. So what is the second episode of a thing called? Do they give it any, uh, is there any name for it? I, I don't think so. It's just the second episode. Like we don't know how many of these we're going to make. So it's not like we can be like, well, this is going to be the, you know, beta. Uh, you know, this, the- this actually is the penultimate episode. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you know, here's my question. Uh, why do things, why do we have a name for the second to last episode of something? What is the well, purpose of that? Well, I just think, well, it's penultimate is like a word you use like, oh, well, I have a list of five things and this is the penultimate one. It's just like a way to like say it fancy. You have like pre things too. you have like antebellum, you know, Mm. I thought antebellum was like the South. Well, antebellum, I think it's like pre I'm going to sound stupid because I'm grasping here, but it's like pre-war or Uh, pre-peace. Maybe it's like pre-civil war, the antebellum South, like before the civil war and then after interesting i just think it's funny that for some reason the second to last gets a formal word but the second episode of something doesn't get a formal word i just think that's weird uh if anyone listens to this and actually knows if there's a name for this uh please write it on our itunes review page uh that would be freaking awesome Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's let's get into it. All right. So, if anyone heard the last episode, uh Sean picked the novel for today's episode, which is Watership Down, which uh was my first time reading it and it kicked ass. I really enjoyed it. Uh let's just get the stupid story plot part out of the way. I've been doing this for a long time. Sean hmm. says he wants to tackle it. I think you'll f- let's see if it's harder than you think it is. Sean, why don't you give us a quick summary of Watership Down? Rabbits try to make a new home. Boom. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, maybe was looking for a little bit something more. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, rabbits do try to make a new home in this book. G- give us more. All right. So uh, basically it follows the plot of Hazel, who is like a young rabbit, and he's got a, like basically a little brother whose name is Fiverr because he was the fifth born in the litter, and he's the runt of the litter. But he's, he has this ability to foresee the future. He has these visions of what's going to happen. He's, uh, and like he, some of them are even accompanied with like spasms and everything. So people don't take him seriously because he's really jumpy and he's a coward, which is like one of the things that rabbits accept amongst each other. But in other words, he's still not taken seriously. Fiverr has a vision that their warren is in danger. And everybody's going to die. So Hazel and Fiverr go and try to convince uh, the leader of the Warren that they have to leave. And the leader basically laughs at him. So Hazel tries to round up other rabbits that would be interested in leaving and forming their own Warren. And the rest of the story basically finds, follows this group of rabbits as they travel through unknown territory, uh, avoiding enemies, avoiding man trying to negotiate like the simplest things like crossing a shallow like stream just the way that the book tells the story is you never are out of the rabbit's world the rabbits are constantly afraid of everything 
but yet they the the will to survive is there. Eventually, they settle down on Watership Down and form a new uh, bu- a new Warren. But they realize that all this work is for nothing if the Warren doesn't continue on. So they need to go get lady rabbits because all the rabbits that leave are men. Okay, you know, I'm going to stop you there because I think that uh, if you go on, we're just going to get a spoiler territory. But I think people get the gist now, which is, is this is an odyssey, right? This is an odyssey tale. Um, yeah. Rabbits go on an adventure, face many dangers in the search for a new home. This is the, the classic uh, adventure tale. The thing yeah. I found really interesting about this book, um, for starters, I listen to the book because I listen to most of my books now on Audible. Uh, shameless plug, not getting paid, should get paid. Uh, that aside, one of the things I found really interesting is I read the uh, the prologue by the author, and the way that this story uh, began was he would orally tell stories to his two little girls like on long car rides and before bed, and he would just make up stuff as he went along. And he made up this story to tell his girls. And I think he did it like either in a long car ride or before they were going to bed. I can't remember. But they liked it so much that uh, he decided to actually write it down and get it published. And one of the really interesting things in his, in his uh, prologue is that he, or the introduction, I guess is what we should really call it, is that he states that this book is not allegory for society, right? It, he says it's not an allegory for mankind. But the thing I found almost false about that is that regardless of whether or not he intended it to be allegory, it clearly is because there's so much world building inside of the rabbit society that he creates that there's no way to, A, not draw parallels to the society of humans, but B, he has to draw upon what he knows, which is the society of humans. So, even though he's like, look, guys, don't take this too seriously. This is just a story. There's no question that his judgments on mankind and society are clearly in this novel. Uh, and for starters, like, you know, so you said they live in a Warren, which I there's a lot of words in this book, which I had never heard of before. Warren being one of them, which is like the colony that rabbits live in. And even in this Warren, there is a hierarchy, uh, a social order that is very similar to humankind in which there is a lead rabbit. Uh, who could you could consider this lead rabbit to be the general, the president, the king, whatever you want, and then underneath the lead rabbit is a military police uh, who are called the the Oz, the Osla. Did I say that right, Sean? Osla. The Ausla, yeah. I don't know if it's a like hard a, O or a soft right. O. And they're like a military order, and they're the, they, they are the next class up in the rung. Uh, so one thing I thought was really cool in this book is that there's tons of world building uh, that goes on amongst the rabbits. Um, he He's creating a rabbit society um, that, you know, even though it mimics man society and, and human society, it also has its own flavor because the author, uh, when he decided to really write this book seriously, he read a whole bunch of um, books about rabbits, basically, from, I don't know what you would call them, zoologists or, you know, people that study nature, uh, you know, the Richard Attenborough types. Mm-hmm. And he kind of blended the two. He fused what a uh, rabbit society would be like and what and how, you know, and, and he can't, he can't create a rabbit society totally organically. Some of it has to be based off of, off of human society. There's no other way for him to do it. I agree. Uh, in as much as in moving the plot forward, like the conflict is very, that can be, I think the most interpreted as uh, 
criticism or commentary on society where the thing about the rabbits to me are they are never anthropomorphized they are never. never they're always rabbits they have different personality traits and tics like there is the one that makes jokes there is the one that's smarter than the other ones but it's always they're just straight up rabbits they all operate on the same mechanisms so they thrive on uh, like their storytelling to keep them going towards each other. They thrive on their caution. But I think the biggest theme of this book that is the commentary is it's better to be free and in danger than to be safe in like a cage. Yeah, that's interesting. you think about that theme. Yeah, so so I I agree with that to a degree. Um, I want to get back a little bit to what you were talking about, like the rabbits being anthropomorphic. God, how do you say that, John? Can you say that word for me, please? This is a learning <laughs> moment. Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorph. So, if I wanted to use it as a verb, anthropomorphized. Anthrop- anthropomorphized. Yeah. Anthropomorphized. Woo. All right. So, one thing I thought was really interesting is that if I had to choose one word to describe this book, like what is the part that differentiates the rabbits' personalities from humans? It's paranoia. These rabbits are constantly paranoid of the danger that surrounds them. They are hyper aware of all of the different things in the world that are out to kill them. And there is a fear, there is a constant paranoia that runs through this book, not just through the the most uh, cowardly characters like Fiverr, but through all the characters. You know, it is a constant struggle to survive. And despite how the odds of death for these rabbits you could say are much higher than the odds of death for the average human being they don't accept death as a natural part of their existence they aren't just like well you know so many of us get killed if it's my time it's my time no these rabbits fight against the dying of the light uh, especially if it's you know like a tractor or a dog or a cat or a bird or a or a creek or a crow or a fox like they actually they, have a name for it it's it's the thousand like they have a thousand yeah. enemies right like they're constantly afraid i mean it was really it was it was shocking how you never get a reprieve from it in the book because they never get a reprieve and it kind of goes to what you were saying about you know i don't know if it's the theme is that it's better to be free and afraid than to be in a cage and to not be afraid because the instances in this book, right, where they think they are wandering into relative safety, they aren't. And I I think it's okay to discuss, in my opinion, what is one of the creepiest and coolest parts of the book, which is early on. Um, They escape their warren. They're just on the move now. They're tired. They're hungry. They have faced some of the natural dangers in the world, and they come across another warren. Uh, and, you know, every time you come across a warren, it's kind of like Christopher Columbus. Like, they've never met these rabbits before. Rabbit society mm-hmm. is highly segregated from warren to warren. It's the and first encounter. It's the first encounter, exactly. And they're hungry, and the other rabbits are like, oh, come to Auburn. We will feed you. And they're like super creepy and they have personality traits that don't like that are that are odd for rabbits. They seem happy, but they also seem I don't know what is the word. It's kind of like the henchman of the Joker. Like there's a kind of lunacy to them that doesn't make any sense because rabbits are so used to being afraid. They're mm-hmm. like, why are these rabbits like so odd? And all these rabbits are also really big. Like these are super fat rabbits. They're fed well. They're taken to this rabbit society and they find out that like the rabbits are being fed 
by like very mysterious circumstances where the rabbit, these rabbits have their own religion that is actually different from the commonly known religion of rabbits, which we'll get into in a little bit. And they basically prayed to like this weird God to like leave them food. And I'm going to spoil this right now because it's so early in the book. But what it turns out is that this warren of these rabbits is actually being maintained by a man. And what this man is doing is that he's figured out if that if he feeds the rabbits and and makes them feel safe every once in a while he can poach like kill a couple rabbits for food and pelts and whatever else he needs them for but the rabbits won't flee because he's feeding them so the rabbits in the warren are playing this crazy game of survival in which they're all competing against each other instead of working together but none of them will leave which means that every time a rabbit is caught by the man or killed by the man the other rabbits are thinking to themselves well it was that rabbit's time but i'm still getting fed by this guide it's almost like a god complex where the god takes some of them and leaves some of them so the reason they bring in uh, hazel's company of rabbits is because they figure these rabbits don't know anything about what's going on and as a result the man will poach them and it's a really crazy um insane part of the book where i wouldn't know how to describe it in terms of human society uh it's it, I, Sean. Do you have like a, I, I guess like a parallel to it in human in human form? I'm, I think I've just had to like work my way into it because the the Warren. It's like the nickname is the Warren of the Silver Wire because that's how the farmer catches them. He traps them in wire, and like he doesn't shoot them. He doesn't gas them or whatever. He just traps them in a wire trap. And the these rabbits have basically gotten soft. They've forgotten their roots. Like, the rabbit that approaches them is named Cowslip, and normally the reaction of seeing, like, another rabbit is to act, like, you know, you know, kind of timid, maybe tenuous, and this rabbit basically stands up and waves at them, and they're like, what is that rabbit doing? And then they bring, once the rabbits get into the warren, and Cowslip is showing uh, Hazel around, because Hazel's kind of the de facto leader, uh, Cowslip's like, oh, well, look at this. And he shows them artwork that the rabbits have put into the wall by putting stones into the side of their uh, burrows. And Hazel's like, what? Like, how do you have time to do this? And the rabbits sing. Even their uh, storytelling is different. Um, and the storytelling is is very informative because these rabbits tell each other stories, basically how to survive, whereas this Warren's like promising young poet is literally saying man like po like what a poetry that a man would write like it's about kind of like a melancholy accepting your fate so the rabbits all acknowledge well here's the thing the rabbits never acknowledge that they're dying you're not allowed in this warren to ask the any question that begins with where it's like oh it's punishable by death that you can't ask if one of the rabbits goes missing that you know you can't be like oh, where'd so-and-so go? Because that reminds them that they are being picked off one by one and they made this sacrifice that they're in safety, but it's safety at the price of, you know, any one of them could die at any time. Like, just dragged off in the middle of the day or night and just, they never come back. So in society, you're right, there's, there's no real parallel. There's no, you know... There's like governments that'll ship people off in the middle of the night, like Russians would just, you know, put you on a train and you end up in Siberia. But 
it would be like because you caused the fence. There's no king that or king, queen, or government ever just like wantonly, you know, killed random members of its society. This is like strictly. I think this one enforces my theme that even though these rabbits are fat and safe, they're losing their their essential rabbitness. They're losing who they are. Rabbits don't waste time making art. Because everything is, is a zero-sum game of survival. They do what's necessary to get along. And like what little entertainment they have is entertainment that you learn lessons from. It's basically all fables, like Aesop's fables or Odysseus telling stories to you know motivate his men. And so what do you think about all of that? That, you know, the rabbits, you know, kind of accepting but not acknowledging what deal they're in. Here's what I like so much about this part of the book um, versus the other parts of the book. It's the most unique and the furthest from a human allegory because this part of the book, it's insanity. Like you, you Mm -hmm. describe the rabbits as like, you know, nobody speaks because nobody wants to acknowledge where the other rabbits are going and how, you know, these rabbits have time to pursue things like art uh, at the expense of their natural rabbit behavior. I kind of viewed the book that these rabbits are insane. Like there's an insanity, uh, that has spread amongst them. It's It's like a, it's not, I don't think it's insanity or necessarily paranoia it's this kind of accepted melancholy. No, they, all the they, other rabbits are paranoid. I mean, all the sane rabbits in in like in, in Hazel's crew are paranoid. These rabbits, I get the sense that in this warrant, are insane. Uh, and, and part of the reason I feel that is like, do you remember the part when Hazel, I believe it is, is describing how Cowslip is like singing and dancing and laughing? And mm-hmm. I don't know, man, like the vibe I got from that is that that rabbit has lost his mind. Yeah, because he's constantly living under the sword of Damocles. Like, he could die at any moment. So they've kind of, instead of focusing on survival, which they no longer have to worry about because the farmer is feeding them, now they're kind of dedicating themselves to these kind of morbid arts because they're not passing down a legacy. Eventually, the Warren might get hunted to where there's no more rabbits coming out. But all the rabbits kind of is, have accepted death. They just don't speak of it to each other. And that is kind of insane that that they would give up so much of their, like I said, essential rabbitness in order to be safe and fat and happy. Well, let me ask you a question. This book, there's a lot of terror, right? There are just a ton mm-hmm. of moments in which the rabbits are in life and death situations. And terror is one of you know the main driving forces uh, of these rabbits. But I found this part of the book to be the most terrifying. And it wasn't because of the death that looms over the rabbits like in every other situation, but it was instead the culture of this Warren. Uh, That creepy vibe just made everything so much scarier to me. Uh, You know, it... There is, there's always life and death, but when you include uh, a peppering of a crazy culture in there, it just completely twists the vibe and makes, you know, it's kind of like the unknown is what's scariest, right? So if you know, like, there's a giant dog trying to catch you, you just run fast. You don't have time to think of anything else. But these rabbits are confused. Uh, Hazel's crew, when they're in this warren, they're confused and they sense 
a creepy insanity, you know, going on in this Warren, but they can't put their finger on what is happening until eventually, uh, through, by the way, what is clearly just a plot driver, Fiverr once again knows what's going on without any indication. You know, any character, by the way, that has like magical powers in which they can just tell you what's going on is just mm-hmm. the author driving the narrative forward. But yeah, that I mean, did you feel that this was in, in ways the scariest part of the book? It is definitely the creepiest. And it's I think it's the part that if you if anybody read this book, they remember probably like as one of the major things why the book is so unique and so special because you just had like up to this point you're living with these rabbits on the run and they're just doing like rabbit stuff and they're living in constant fear they're tired like there's even a rabbit word for fear called thorn where you just freeze in your tracks and you can't do anything you're just so scared like eventually you just roll over and and you know you just get killed by whatever's chasing you and then to get to this Warren where everybody's so calm and complacent and like almost like a cult that they've turned themselves over, you know, to live this way uh, is just it's just so special and unique. Like and yeah, I, I think it's kind of funny that Fiverr's Fiverr is the one that's most paranoid about these rabbits and he's the one that kind of figures it out and says we have to leave again um, and it is kind of a plot device, but in it, it's good because it moves on to the next part of the book, which is important to talk about. Did you have anything else to add about the Warren of the Silver Road? I Rope? do. I do. I can't help but bring these things back to movies. Um, this part of the book reminds me of the scariest part in the Indiana Jones trilogy. I don't count the last one. That's not even a movie, uh, but it's, it's Temple of Doom. You know what? Remember what I'm talking about? Uh, what's his, what, what does that dude say before he rips out that other guy's heart? Kalima. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, these rabbits remind me of all those people. Where were they? I, I don't want to be racist or anything. I think they were in it's India, like, though. I, I think they were actually in the subcontinent of India. Yeah, uh, like somewhere in the Southeast Asia. Right. But like, you remember how all those people are there just like witnessing this, like this crazy cult priest, uh, rip out somebody's heart and they're all just like, they're all long for the ride. Like, let's fucking do this. So yeah, that, that's what this part of the book, uh, reminded me of before we move on just in pure plot though. Let me ask you a question because this mm-hmm. was your choice for book. What's yeah. your fa- What is, why this book basically? Like what's your favorite part? What is the thing about this book? that you hold the most that in, in high esteem? I think it's the part we mentioned before where it's the world building, that these rabbits tell stories, and there are, I think there's three or four entire chapters where it's just a story of the legendary rabbit hero who's most like likely akin to a Robin Hood, whose name is El Arira. No, 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 no. Erarera. Erarera. Which, by the way, I think I think the reason that the author wrote so much of the this is the this is the religion of the rabbits. The tale of Erarera is the religion to these rabbits. It is their Mm -hmm. origin story. And I think the reason the author wrote so much of this origin story into the book. I mean, whole chapters just like the entire momentum of the of the plot just stops. So that uh, what's his name? What was the author's name again? Richard Adams? Richard Adams. So that Richard Adams can just, uh, he, so he can write this. But I think the reason he does it is because the, the word, 
It's just a lot of fun to say. Yeah, I I, I thought yeah, it's it's hard to like say. Loretta, <laughs> I'm I'm doing it where I'm taking out the L's and I'm re- and I'm replacing them with R's because that's how the author of my book uh, read it. In fact, it was Peter Capaldi. He was one of the Doctor Who's. Oh, errorera. Oh, that makes more sense. So he was going errorera or errorera, but you basically <laughs> can't hear the L at all. It was su- it's it's a super fun word to say. Here's you know, it's funny. I love the world building in this book. That being said, the rabbit backstory is my least favorite part of the book. Um, a, you don't like it? Just, it? Well, A, it halts, yeah, it halts the momentum of the book. And B, I'm not a Silmarillion guy. I am generally not into the created myths of these characters, like in any book, I, I I'm more into the into the present plot that is happening, rather mm. than the old myths, and I, I think that goes really in any form of uh, fiction for me. I'm generally less interested in the religion uh, that characters um, adhere to, and maybe that's because I myself, while I'm greatly interested in the history of religion, I'm not actually interested in the theology itself. I think it's all nonsense uh, i'm an atheist but you know I, I think religion is important from a societal sense but i don't know the story of this rabbit etta, etta, it doesn't do much for me i think what's interesting is that the rabbits have a religion but that doesn't mean i need to know so much about it well i, I don't think it's so much as a religion it's it's their creation myth and then it's their like hero like etta, etta represents everything that is best about a rabbit He's always outsmarting the thousand enemies that are trying to kill him. And even one of the stories later on becomes the way that the rabbits solve the, you know, the biggest problem that they eventually face. So I think the stories are twofold. That the stories are for survival and also just to get the plot moving. And I also think that at the very, very end, there's an amazing payoff to all these stories that I'll get to when we actually talk about it. Are we talking about the very, very, very end? Like last the very, chapter the, the end? Very, yeah, the, the very, very, very end. So are we going to spoil this book? I'm okay I with mean, spoiling it. Well, we can, we can, I tell you what, let's do it at the end so that we can say spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that because there's still enough plot left to talk about before we get to that part that, you know, we don't have a problem with, you know, we don't have to go ahead and spoil it now. Yeah, so it's kind of funny, too. One thing I think is a bit odd about this book, uh, something that he didn't... I don't know if he meant to do it this way or not, and it's also moving forward in the story. Um, and this might skip over a few of the the many dangers that these rabbits uh, run into, but every single Warren in this book is basically some sort of paranoid police state. Have you noticed that? Even the one they leave is a paranoid police state. The, uh, the leader rabbit... Um, doesn't want them to leave, and in fact, he sends his military order. Actually, technically, he doesn't. The military order we find out on their own decides to prevent mm. these, these rabbits from leaving. But every warren they encounter is a super fucked up place. They never once encounter a warren of like just friendly rabbits. Like, oh hey, how you doing? Everything's cool here. Yeah, I mean the the very first rabbit uh, warren that we find, they have the Ausla that's there, but they seem more like a royal court. They're always picked to be like the biggest and the strongest so they can knock the other rabbits around. 
But I think the the main rabbits, the head rabbits, reason for not leaving was because like he's like seriously, you want the whole Warren to go? He's like, where are we going to go? And they don't have that. And then the 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 second Warren they encounter, they don't even have the head rabbit. Like they don't even have an Owslow. They all assume it's Cowslip because it's the first rabbit they meet, and he's the one that's walking around. It's just another essential piece of like the rabbitness that they've lost. Yeah, I mean, their their rabbits, their their Warren is you know an insane place of chaos. Right, it's an insane asylum. <laughs> right, but then we go to the third Warren, and I know this is skipping over some things, and we can bounce back and forth. Yeah, but the third Warren, which by the way really serves as the main antagonist of the book, um, is this police state where, as you mentioned, the Hazel's crew, right? So our merry band of rabbits, they get to the to the the area that Fiverr has basically uh, prophesized is the place that's going to be their new Warren. They get there fairly early in the book, which is a bit of a surprise because normally, you know, the destination in any novel is usually the last thing that happens. But they Mm -hmm. get there pretty much, like, in the middle. um, And what they realize is they need does. Does are female rabbits because without does... uh, their Warren's not going to survive, right? They got to have children. Like this is this all their hard work is in vain. Yeah, they're not simply just trying to live their own lives. They're trying to start a new rabbit society. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that for them, it's described as death. Where even if they live there for the rest of their lives, if they don't start a new rabbit society, it, it's like dying early. It, it makes no difference to like they have to start a new society. So they go to find some does in a Warren nearby that they've been told about by. An insane bird they come across. What's the bird's name? Do you remember? Uh, Kihar. And in when the you listen to the audible version, right? So, did so they my give him like an accent. Him in, yes, they did give him an accent. He talked like this. Like yeah. it was like he was like part Italian, part German. It was like really strange. So he he sounded oh, insane to me. In how my is he head, written in the book? Like how is he actually? Is he written in that same kind of staccato style, or does he come off? more fluent i don't mean in rabbit language but i just mean in his style of speaking no so the rabbits have their own language the lupine where they get their the words for things and there's a common language that all animals can share to each other but it's going to sound like like um uh, pig like pigeon like the kind yeah. of mashing up so the 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 bird kihar kind of sounded to me like he was like uh like almost like Jamaican or from the Caribbean in my <laughs> head read yeah. in my head when I read them because it's a it's a seagull so I imagine that's where he's going like when he flies south or he originated there uh, like across the big water <laughs> like yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah okay, so, so yes so Kihar th- scouts out where this other Warren is yeah and this other Warren is basically a fascist police state um so it's kind of like uh margaret atwood's like either worst nightmare or secretly her i don't know her 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 greatest dream i I, people i think kind of misunderstand where margaret margaret atwood is coming from i think because i can't tell if she's obsessed with being dominated or just she (laughs) thinks that's where it's going or that's what she wants to happen uh but this is a society uh much like handmaiden's tale where the does of this warren are brutalized by an oppressive male regime and it's it's basically nazism i mean do you think if you had to guess like if you asked uh richard adams hey man like who are these rabbits what what is the warren called by the way is it like ethera ephrafra yeah ephrafra ephrafra 
Yeah, so these rabbits, I mean, do you think they're Nazis, basically? This book was written in the 70s, so we know about Nazis. There's a real, I'm, I got a real Nazi vibe from them. I, I did, because what happens is it was a Warren that was surviving on its own, and then the, the big bad of the story, General Woundwort, comes in and basically militarily forces them that to make him the leader. Like he he does does like a one man coup and he takes over the Warren, but his main concern is is safety for all the people. So the rabbits are tightly monitored. They're actually marked at birth. And they go out into groups depending at what time to eat and do their business, depending on what mark they have. And all the rabbits are forbidden to leave the Warren, except for wound warts, like top captains. He even has like captains and lieutenants amongst the Ausla. And they are responsible for the each individual like marked groups. So yes, it's a very tightly controlled totalitarian like totalitarian. 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 Yeah. It's it's basically, yeah, everybody's on lockdown. It's a military state. It Like, they have a prisoner that tried to flee, and they bite his ears and tail off and force him to go out whenever the other rabbits are feeding, just as an example to the other rabbits not to flee. Like, this is what happens to you. So it's like the complete opposite of the Warren of the Silver Wire, where these rabbits under General Woundwort are like desperate to get out. Like the they do not want to po- stay And there. also the fear has poisoned all their minds. Yes, like, they're paranoid. It's almost like a communist like police state where it's like, yeah. oh, you can't talk about leaving. You have to trust the people because rabbits, it's pointed out that rabbits are not good with secrets. If one rabbit has a secret, eventually every rabbit will know. So in order to try to escape this lockdown is a very dangerous thing because you're going to get the crap kicked out of you if you get caught. Well, let me ask you a question, okay? This part of the book, I think, is the most... Un- it's If you don't want to call it allegory, it's the most undeniably inspired part from humans, right? I mean, this is, like, this is just a, a totalitarian human society. And I guess my question is... Is this part of the book, is creating these antagonists who really closely resemble humans, is it something he had to do because it wasn't enough to make the natural world the antagonist and to have like the Bambi human to be the antagonist? Did he have to make an antagonist that had personality traits that were evil, uh, to put it, I don't know, like uh, plainly, um, instead of just saying, you know, the rivers are the antagonists and the humans who who don't kill the rabbits to be evil, they kill the rabbits because they're humans, right? They, maybe they don't mm-hmm. understand their destructive nature on the natural world, but they're not doing it because they're driven by some sort of uh, antagonistic like element. But in this part of the book, he's creating villains, basically. Um, and I wonder, I guess my question is, Sean, is it cheap? Is it cheap that he basically made bad guys? I think it's a clever workaround because you have to have a plot. I mean, either the story goes off and does and wanders forever or it it doesn't and it doesn't end. Mm-hmm. But in I think in making the other rabbits the inevitable enemies is kind of a, a nice little twist because all the other dangers they encounter are kind of like 
I wouldn't say benevolent. Like, no fox is going to kill a rabbit just for pleasure. The fox kills them because they're it's indifferent. Hungry. They're indifferent. Yeah. Like, the, the cats that attack the rabbits are doing it out of their, like, predatory instinct. Like, none of the, the thousand, even though they're all dangerous to the rabbits, they're not specifically hunting down the rabbits. Whereas when they initially meet Wound Wart, they send out an envoy, like a diplomatic thing, like, to ask if they could just have does. Because apparently, like, it's something they know about that's happened before. Where and there's too warren, many does. There's too many yeah. does in this warren. So they should be happy to kind of let some does go. And Woundwort's like, he's like, no, you can't have any does. And by the way, you're, you're living here now. Like, you're not going back to wherever you came from. He's kidnapping them and taking them into his warren. And then once they escape, Woundwort actively pursues and attacks the, 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 uh, the good rabbits in this Yeah, he's, moti- he's motivated by revenge. So they, they managed to basically break out some of the female does from this warren. Um, first, when they go there to ask for does, they're in prison themselves. Then they escape, and then they hatch another plot to get some of the does out of there, which they do. And as a result, General, how do you say his name? Woundwort. Boy, th- by the way, this book really, uh, like, here's what I do when I read, by the way, when I actually, so this time, even though it was said to me by the narrator, I still, through years of habit, kind of block it out of my mind, because sometimes when I see a word like that, that I don't understand, I recognize it more as a symbol than I actually read it out to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so he pursues a policy of revenge uh, against Hazel's rabbits, um, and that's why he is the antagonist of the book. You know what I mean? Because now we're getting into character traits that we would consider to be um, immoral. Something about your explanation, which I do think rings true, and I think speaks once again to the allegory uh, of this novel that Richard Adams says doesn't exist, is that Amongst humankind, human society, there are two great dangers to us. One is the indifference of the universe to us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The universe, which is not just the greater universe, but also the natural world, is indifferent to humans. The wolves are indifferent to us, the elephants, the tigers, uh, and whatever else is out there. There's nothing here that... um, on this planet that is rooting for humans to survive or rooting against us. It, it, it's just nature's indifference to us, right? And there's a fear to that. There's there's an existential terror uh, to mm-hmm. the indifference of the universe towards man. But at the same time, because of that indifference to the uni- of the universe towards us, it creates um, qualities in ourselves that are self-destructive, which I think, once again, is what these rabbits are going through. Like, why is there a fascist police state amongst these rabbits? It's not mm-hmm. purely for personal power. They are reacting to the terror of the natural world around them. The reason they live in such a secure police state, they think, is to make themselves safer. But as a result, they are creating the type of conflict and tragedy that exists amongst humankind. Um, so I guess you're right. It's not cheap. It's not a cheap way of going because... In his own profound way, he is illustrating the two types of danger that exist in human society. One is the actual danger of the natural world around us, and then the other danger is our reaction to that indifference, to that danger of the natural world. I agree with you. I I think I would put it another way, is that there's the indifference of the universe is dangerous, 
but the biggest danger to mankind is other men. Yeah, and in man. this case, it's one-on-one transparent that the most dangerous and uh, most dangerous threat these rabbits face are other rabbits that they have to overcome. So I think that was the that's the allegory that he's trying to like sweep under the rug <laughs> and not say. But I think that's very clever in making the other rabbits because I think that is a a good uh, lesson to learn that you know you have to keep your eye out that you don't fall into a ditch and get lucky enough that you don't live near a fault line. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, your worst enemy by various methods of oppression or violence, lying, deceit, whatever is always going to be your fellow man. Yeah. One thing I, um, I found, uh, super, super interesting, um, about this is that I guess, so this guy, right, he is an author because he's created a classic published book. But I think part of the reason he said that in his uh, in his introduction is because he doesn't want to come off as pretentious, especially as a first-time author. I think he was trying to tamp... He wasn't trying to make himself seem like an asshole, like, look, this book is about humankind, so that mm-hmm. people wouldn't rip him to shreds, you know what I mean? Because he wasn't sure he had that kind of credibility when he wrote the book. Yeah, because he was just telling a a long story to his daughters. And, you know, whether or not these tweaks and changes to the plot eventually came about later when he has actually sat down to put, you know, pen to paper, that I think that would be fascinating if you could get an interview with him describing that. Like, when did he, you know, when did he come up with these enemies? And because obviously he's trying to, this story is trying to also teach. I think his daughters in a way like, you know, to be, to be clever, to be independent and not, you know, give in when, you know, the rest of society has to any type of regime that's dangerous to themselves. That's why I'm saying that the lesson of the story is always pursue your own freedom, never settle and get yourself stuck in a cage. So one cool thing about Richard Adams, um, even though by the way, there is a sequel to this book. He wrote a sequel in the 90s. Um, I'm not entirely sure what it's about because I think it's a collection of short stories involving the rabbits. Um, but one cool thing about it is I have, I've always romanticized the notion of instead of being a celebrated master of any craft, whether you be a director or a novelist, um, you're somebody who makes one thing, right? So like an accountant writes one novel that is remembered for all time as a classic. Like I think I think there's something really cool about just like guy makes thing or woman makes thing and nobody sees it coming because this person is not a professional at the thing they're making. Yeah, I really like that too. Um, my favorite poet is Wallace Stevens and he was like an insurance writer. And then when he got into his <laughs> So was 50s, he a nihilist? Did he write nihilism poetry? No, he wrote like he wrote these <laughs> the meaningless beautiful, of it all. No, he wrote these beautiful, elegant, like almost dreamlike fantasy type of poems. And yeah, the guy was just this button down job for his entire life. And as he denied I, insurance claims. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean he's like so tired of dealing with the ugliness and cutthroatness of that business. He's like, I gotta put something beautiful in the world to atone for it. And yeah, he, I think it really came off. But yeah, just that kind of thing where, you know, out of nowhere, kind of as a hobby, you you write a classic and without doing it, you know, pretentiously. You're no you're not that like part time T 
teacher that's like, I'm going to write the great American novel. And it's just yeah. a pile of horseshit. <laughs> this, this story came so naturally that he wanted to tell his girls a less like a story that imparted lessons. And it just so happens he hit on this wonderful universal story that can be beloved by like everybody by generations. Well, let me and ask you why, a question. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question. Um, there's a style. All right. So you know how like we have, there's different, well, I don't know what you would call them. They're kind of like narration points of view. There is the narrator who is all knowing. Um, I think they call that what omniscient, like the omniscient narrator who knows yeah. more than the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also the narrator who knows the exact same amount that the characters know. And one thing I found interesting about this narration is that he kind of narrated it like he was writing a book about rabbits. And what I mean by that is not where the rabbits were his characters, but there's an observational quality. So he'll say things like, he'll say things like, rabbits do not take does for love. Rabbits need the does to, you know, just further their society. He's he's taking what is kind of like the omniscient um, narrator approach, but he's giving it a slightly... I guess for the purposes of this book, because these are characters and it's a society, a cultural anthropological, did I say that right? Anthropological? I think so. A yeah. cultural anthropological um, explanation of things. So the rabbits themselves don't really understand this, but he does. I thought it was a really interesting choice of narration where he is the one um, explaining the differences of the rabbit world to the human world. Yeah, um, he's constantly making asides to explain like what, like why the rabbits do things, like when they go out to feed, what they do in their spare time. It's all very naturalistic, and he's kind of like hovering over their shoulders. And when something happens that's weird, he kind of like steps in. And he's like, "Oh well, rabbits do this because X," you know. Uh, like you said, it's like the rabbits don't mate for love. He's like, they do it out of necessity, but he's like, it's not unusual that they stick together for life, you know, and it's, it's not like the, like the rabbit, like the way that he explains things that, you know, why cowslip is so weird is because the way a real rabbit would act is completely different from what cowslip would. And I mean, right now, because we're given Richard Adams props, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to say is that I'm a big – so it goes along with what you're saying. He even at the beginning of every chapter includes human quotes, like quotes from Napoleon and like other people, things that these rabbits would mm-hmm. have no idea about except for us, the readers. Yeah, and it, it kind of sets up what's happening in the chapter. I found that like there is so much about this book, reading it right after Dune, that it's – very similar to Dune in a couple of ways. Like that pre-chapter narration, you know, the the hero's journey, how they have to overthrow an evil house that's very similar but also very twisted in in their image. Uh, <laughs> did you think anything like that when you were hearing the story? Like, this smacks of Dune. What I realized, Sean, is that I am a huge fan of quotes at the beginning of chapters. Huge. Like some of my, it doesn't have to just be quotes. I love when something occurs at the beginning of a chapter that has no, like it doesn't start as like, and then Fiverr like went here. It's like, you know, it's either a quote or like a conversation between two people. Um, when I was a kid, Ender's Game and the entire Ender's Game series were my favorite books. In every one of those chapters, 
started with a conversation between two characters who are not even usually in the chapter. Uh, there's just something super fucking cool about that. You know what it is? It's like the beginning of The Matrix. Remember the very first scene in The Matrix? There was like a telephone call. Uh, well, it's that's like with, Morpheus with, with, is on the phone or something, right? It's like a telephone call, and it and it doesn't like directly impact the plot later on, but it's like mysterious. I, I just love that. I think it's a super cool trick. Yeah, it, it's kind of it's like it's fourth wall breaking in a way. Yeah. It's like a meta choice because you don't need those quotes in there. But I think he was just like, well, let me just put in some of my favorite quotations, bits of poetry that actually apply to what's about to happen. Kind of like prime your mind to get into it. Because I found myself so engrossed in the rabbit's natural world. Not that I like ever thought, oh, no, I'm a rabbit now. (laughs) Or like, how could I regain my humanity? I think it's a neat little trick that he's like, oh, well, here's things from human history that mimic the rabbits and that's why you should care about the rabbits you know why their survival is important be not that they mimic our society in any given way but i think he's just priming our minds for what's about to happen and give us a little more in a strange way like empathy with the rabbits you know what I would like? I would like if, like, you're watching him, like, Bird's Eye View, write this story. He's on his typewriter, right? And he writes one of the quotes before a chapter. And then he just takes a drag of a cigarette and he goes, yeah, that was fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, sips, like, some whiskey and just, you yeah. know, starts but, punching the next one. It might even be a trick for him to ramp him into the next story. Like, I what, hope that authors did... do this part simply because it's fucking cool. Like, for no other greater reason. Like, yeah, that was, like, this is their favorite part. It's just, like, opening up chapters this way. Oh, yeah, like, that was tight. Like, like yeah, exactly. Like, something, <laughs> exactly. something, something tight, they learned. Man. Yeah, something they learned back in college that, you know, really stuck with them. And they're like, oh, I get to use this now. And it's right, it's like how Tarantino writes entire scripts. Like, Tarantino's mm-hmm. not writing scripts being like, boy, I really think I nailed the human condition on this one. No, like, every single page Tarantino's writing, he's looking it back over me. Man, that was fucking cool, man. That was really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, just kind of patting yourself on the shoulder. Like, I'm so glad I remembered that and had that marked out. Yeah. Okay, so from this point out, I think uh, what I'm going to say is let's we're going to get into the, the end of the book here. So if you haven't read the book, Pause it here, read the book, and then come back to the podcast. Because I think from here on out, Sean, we should talk about where things go uh, once the rabbits break these does out of the fascist uh, warren, which is called Ephorera. Is it Ephorera? Yeah, it's something like that. Let's call it the F warren from now on. No, you know what I want to do is I want to just give it a new word every time. Oh, okay. There's any. A referfa. Okay. A referfa. So here we go. Here's where the book gets in some ways conventional, but not too conventional. Um, they set up their warren. They've got these new does. And it turns out uh, General Wormtongue, I don't know how to say his name, uh, <laughs> and his other rabbits are going to attack the warren. And, you know, so so now we're getting to like the Marvel's Avengers like final battle. And they come up with a plan to defeat these other rabbits. Sean, why don't you take it from here? Yes, so basically they get the drop on Wound Warp because he's basically bringing his entire like army to attack the Watership Down Warren. They get the drop on him, so they're able to anticipate it. So the rabbits basically, they 
as the best they can, they put blockades in their the openings of the burrows. So Wound Wart has to expend energy in digging them out. But they're basically under siege in medieval castle warfare. Yeah. Their food's not going to last. They're going to like, eventually they're going to, uh, the attackers are going to break in. So the rabbits are like, this is their lowest moment. And then Fiverr, of course, because it has to be him, he all of a sudden comes up with an idea or basically they before somewhere during the siege in order to calm everybody's nerves. They tell one of the rabbit stories, which is about basically tricking and kind of bullying a dog. And I believe that that inspires Fiverr to have another one of his seizures. But he makes a sound that says like no rabbit should ever make, which I imagine is exactly how it's said like a bellowing of like a, a beast and it actually scares off wound attacking force for a little while. And it gives Hazel the idea that previously in the book, when they tried to steal other does from a farm, they noticed it's a there farm was a, nearby, by the way, yeah. there's a farm nearby the Warren. So not, not just one words, uh, effort, uh, crew are antagonists, but there's also this farm nearby that represents a danger. Yeah, and the danger is represented by uh, two cats and a dog. So Fiverr gets the idea, in order to save his people from the siege, he's going to have to risk his life and a couple of the rabbits in order to free the dog from its... uh, It's basically tied to on a rope to a peg in the ground. Free the dog and then lead the dog back onto Woundwort's unsuspecting forces. And meanwhile... uh, basically uh big wig is hazel's number two command he's basically the most if you have to put a human trait on him the most militaristic kind mm-hmm. of gruff like no nonsense always looking to fight basically hides all the other rabbits in one burrow and big wigs instructed to hold the like hold the door literally like just to know- pause you for a second big wig was one of the Osla from the Warren they left. So Bigwig was a soldier before they left. Yeah, and like I said, he's he's always down to fight. So that's why Hazel instructs him with this job. And it comes to the fact that once the other Woundwort attacking soldiers hear that sound and back off, Woundwort goes into in himself into a fight. And it's basically the showdown that you've been building up to. You get Bigwig versus Woundwort, where basically Woundwort burrows he in. Fucks him up. Yeah, and Bigwig is basically lying under the dirt and waits till Woundwort gets like a little bit in front of him and pops out behind him like a goddamn rabbit ninja and starts <laughs> biting him because that's the only way. Like, Woundwort is portrayed as this massive, like, massively built rabbit that could just destroy any other rabbit. So Bigwig basically has to ambush him. They get into a fight, um, but Bigwig's able to protect the other rabbits. Woundwort actually is surprised and so caught off guard. He flees right as the dog is coming in and basically scaring off all his troops and ripping into him. The only problem with Hazel's plan, though, is he misses a cat. And a cat basically gets a drop on him. And this is one of like the creepiest things in the book to me was up till now, the rabbits have talked to each other and they talk to a mouse briefly mm-hmm. and they talk to Kihar, the gull. 
these are all like other friendly vegetarian animals. They encounter foxes and other like dangerous animals, but they never speak. When the cat jumps on Hazel and pins him down, the last word of that chapter is he's like, you can't run now, can you? And it's just like, whoa, <laughs> that was so eerie to me that no other animal talked in plain English until that cat got the drop on Hazel. I thought that was a great way to like build tension leading up. Would, and not think... only that, but the cats and the dogs are portrayed like humans in only in the sense that they don't speak rabbit, right? So mm-hmm. the cats and the dogs never talk. They're the threat that they pose to the rabbits isn't like the threats that other rabbits or even the other um, animals that speak to the rabbits present. They're like an alien enemy. So the reason it's so creepy when the cat actually talks is because it's known how to talk to the rabbits the whole time. And it's Mm -hmm. just preferred to remain silent uh, and deadly, so to speak, Uh, not to make a fart pun. And (laughs) And that's what makes it so creepy. I mean, imagine... You're getting. You've been fighting with an alien for weeks, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you find out the alien speaks English. Yeah, or somebody that has been speaking in like a foreign language to your ear, all of a sudden says in in perfect English, like "I've got you now, and I'm going to kill you." <laughs> like it, it's insane. It's so, super sinister. It's really sinister. Yeah. Um, so then there's uh, so the the. The Warren is saved, but Hazel hasn't returned. And it basically there's a chapter, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's all, it's very, very close to Ex Machina, where Hazel gets saved by the little girl that lives in the farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens a doctor is visiting that day, and he patches Hazel up, drives him nearby the Warren by coincidence or, you know, Ex Machina, and then lets him off to go back to the Warren. So Hazel returns, and he's got this story of how he outsmarted the other rabbits by freeing a dog, and then he was driven back to the Warren in a car by a man. And the other rabbits are like, well, that's our Hazel kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of Richard Adams, by the way, giving a pass to humans somewhat, saying, like, we're not all bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's like there's a couple other times where like the humans don't mean danger, they're like where they wander past one that's just like staring at them while leaning on a fence, like that doesn't mm-hmm. immediately reach for a rifle or anything. Um, but I think there's a part that I I think we kind of skipped it that I thought was harrowing is the other clever part of breaking out the does from uh, Zach Efron Warren mm-hmm. is <laughs> I like that. They they have a boat, and basically BlackBerry knows that boats can float on the water. So their plan is they're going to round up all the does and all the rabbits onto the boat, bite the rope, and then sail downstream in order to make make the escape good. And there's like a part in it where like some of them had to fight, and they're like wounded, tired, and scared, and they have to ride this. It's like a small skiff of a boat, like not like a skiff. Like, even smaller than, like, a rowboat, I feel. And it has mm-hmm. to pass under a bridge. And, like, the like one of the, like, female does gets, like, smacked in half by the bridge. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, the story gets really, really grim. And, like, the survival, like, survival instinct is, like, at its highest. And it's, it's very tense when you're reading it. 
I think the whole story is grim, Sean, and it's, I don't know why uh, Disney hasn't made this into a movie. Like, this has been made into at least two different adaptations. One from, mm-hmm. I think, the 70s or 80s with William Hurt, no, sorry, with John Hurt. It's actually really tight. It's yeah, on that YouTube movie's, for that movie's free. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's on YouTube for free. I highly recommend it. There's another one on Netflix that is not tight. Uh, I don't recommend that. Um, but I always wondered if Disney never made this into a movie because it's too grim. Yeah, there's there's it's very realistic in its violence and it's not the Disney, you know, stock in charge of like, oh, well, if they're rabbits, then, you know, slap some pants on them, have them say some catchphrases. Like when I say they're not anthropomorphic, that's this book's biggest strength. It's yeah. so it's so that's refreshing. Why Disney couldn't do it. That's why Disney couldn't do it. Yeah, it's so refreshing to see something that's written for kids that doesn't pull any punches, tries to instruct them on life. And it's not about like a hedgehog singing a pop song. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I would recommend this to anybody that has like a kid. Of, what would you say? You have a son. Like when I would are you ever going to? Of course. There's no question. I think it's good, by the way, Sean, for kids to be a little scared. Oh, yeah. You got, I mean, that's what all Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop's fables were. They were like, they had to put the fear <laughs> of the world into them. You know, kind of yeah, put I mean, them on you, their toes. You can't, look, you want to protect your kids but also, you don't want to shield their intellect, right? You're not helping shape their intellect if you're basically only giving them juice. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Disney is juice. Disney's candy. And this book is like a steak dinner with mashed potatoes. It's delicious, but it's also hearty and good for you. Yeah, so I'm interested. I wanted to ask you, like, when would you introduce this to your son? Like, whether or not you're going to read it to him or, like, give I, it I'm to gonna, him. I'm going to like, read it read to him, book. but I got to see how, I'll read it to him, but I got to see how smart he is. <laughs> My, mm. This is something I definitely want to read to him um, just because I think having an adult read a book to a child, like this kind of book, if he has questions, I can help clarify them. My mm. guess is I wouldn't do it until he was about nine years old. And I got to see how smart he is at nine. You know, yeah, when we I, were nine years old, it's going to be a different world for my son when he's nine years old than when you and I were nine years old because we weren't on the internet. So we were far less exposed to things. I mean, kids, you know, nine-year-olds now, like, know how, you know, I've seen the video of General Gaddafi being murdered by his own troops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and that's what that's what the big question I wanted to ask you is like, oh, well, when do you, would like, recommend this to, re- like, give it to a kid? And there's enough there, like, if, if you you're going to give him, it to a kid, 12. If you're going to read it to your kid at youngest nine. Yeah, but I'm no great expert. My kid's three and a half. I'm no great expert. Yeah. There's like, there's plenty of like funny names and weird words like, <laughs> you know, that I think would keep a kid's interest. But yeah, I think if they do have questions about what's going on, you need to keep it in there. And I mean, look, the, way- the, the, the reason the book would keep any, a kid's interest is for the reason it would keep an adult's interest, which is that it's gripping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's also lulls, though, in it that are, you know, where it's more naturalistic, where it's very much setting the scene Mm -hmm. of, you know, the surrounding environment. And, yeah, some of the violence towards the end is a little, it it could be a little much for a young one. Okay, so Uh, let's, before we, before we wrap up, let's, let's, um talk about two of the spoilers towards the end because i had a question for you or it's not really a question it's just something i think is really cool um general general uh bob woodward um Mm -hmm. you know he said the dog chases him off you said the dog chases him off but i don't think that's exactly true he fights the dog and what i think is really cool is that um 
even though he disappears and his body is never found, what you find out years later is that the general, the antagonist rabbit, there's a kind of um, begrudging respect for him. He's been turned into a myth, a kind of boogeyman for younger rabbits by the end of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, now they're living peacefully in their new war in society. But there's this tale that basically him and the dog have been locked in this eternal battle all this time. And I think I think that's really cool. Like it, there's a begrudging respect for the general's toughness, for the idea that unlike all the other rabbits, he's the bravest one. The most well, I don't ferocious. The the cool part that I like and that's what I like about the stories is in the rabbit myths, they have the rat like the rabbit equivalent of death or you know like a satan like figure called the black rabbit of inlay mm-hmm. and that's kind of the the story you tell your kids like oh if the black rabbit catches you out at night and he calls your name you have to go to him and that means you're going to die and wound wart kind of takes that place he replaces think, that role yeah absolutely but that's yeah. that, that in a way is a sign of respect to him yeah and it's and it's like it's also marking danger to the next group of rabbits coming up where there is there is something out there. There are forces beyond your comprehension that mean you harm. And the same goes for they make myths about Hazel. They talk mm-hmm. about Hazel and his exploits. And in turn, he becomes the new, you know, El Rey theater, you know. So imagine almost like Spanish, like you got to roll your tongue a little bit. There you go. Now you're getting but that's it. But that's what I loved about the stories is that it comes full circle. So those stories that is the that, Is that were, the part, by the way? That's what I wanted to ask you. You said earlier, I wanted to make sure we, we don't leave your teasers hanging in the wind and forget them, but you said the story of Ereda has a major like development at the end, and that was the other part I wanted to ask you, the second part. Is, is that what you're talking about right now? Well, no, it's yes, it's that that ties it up. And the plot thing was that the uh, Ereda when he tricks the dog, that's what right. triggers Fiverr's, yeah. you know, reaction and has this idea that he, he, whether or not he intends to comes out as bellowing as an animal. And that gets them to get the dog over there. I but wasn't sure what you meant is the idea that what you were reading is the new mythology. Right? That's, so, that's exactly what I'm trying to hint right. at. So we're, we're reading, when we're reading the story of Ereda, we're reading Hazel and his group of rabbits, their mythology, the one they fall back on. But in the last yeah. chapter, Hazel's an old man. All the other rabbits are old. And now, and then actually Hazel dies. Um, I don't need to say spoiler alert. Um, he dies. But yeah, his story and his exploits of the origins of this Warren become the new mythology. Yeah, and that that's what I thought was really cool is because it's not like rabbits have the written word to lean on. Um, I imagine like an oral tradition can yeah, last very absolutely. long, but but rabbits die off very like, young. The author points it out. Rabbits only live to be about three or four out in the wild. So I thought it was really neat and interesting that the Ereda stories, they're even Firth, that might only be four or five years old. Yeah, so, I was gonna say it might have it might have only been fifteen years ago. You know what I mean? Like that might be their most their most ancient legend. Yeah, and that just I that just struck me as like infinitely cool where it's like oh so that's why the story's paid off because that cements their place in the you know the mythology to help the next generation survive and by like the way they, you know what? I'm they all need for heroes. that I'm all for that in human society like 
you know what? The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran, we could use some sequels. You know, if we're going to be making shit up all the time, if we're gonna, look, I don't care. If you, if you don't like what I'm saying, fuck off. Uh, if we're going to be making up shit, right, let's keep making up shit. Why do we all have to be fucking, uh, you know, devoted to some shit that somebody made up? Well, it was the Old Testament, we'll say 3,000 years ago, the New Testament 2,000 years ago, and the Quran. 1400 years ago right why are we fucking beholden to that shit why can't we write some new shit if we're gonna make I mean, shit up let's make shit up let's we, keep going we do every basically every book every film since then in one way or the other is kind of pushing along our like humanity's narrative as a whole like when you like when society was dangerous like that's when you had like urban legends when you know the dad didn't want his teenage daughter to go mm-hmm. like lose her virginity by the lake with the boy he told you he told her the story right. about the, the guy with a hook for a hand that would come and right. get you here's you know, what i want to so, say like people hate on scientology give me mm-hmm. more scientologies i want lots of them yeah oh. i think just i think humanity in, in general is done with like the creation myth aspect and that's yeah. why i think philosophy kind of took over in that kind of mystical metaphysical way like why are we here etc mm-hmm. etc because if somebody is like, oh, yeah, well, well, the only other acceptable thing is if it's not an omnipresent being, it's just incredibly advanced aliens, right, spirits, right, right. ghosts, or whatever that crap is. No offense okay. out there to my Scientologist listeners. No, no, I mean you great offense. Uh, Sean, any other final thoughts on this book before we wrap up? The book makes me cry every single time I read it. Really? <laughs> yeah, which every part? Single... Which part? I want to know which part you actually cry in. It's when... Uh, it's when Hazel wakes up and he feels like another rabbit next to him. And it's the rabbit God inlay. Yeah. Yep. He's like, come it's with me now. And they, yeah, they, he takes him up to rabbit heaven and like puts him amongst the stars because he was so clever. Like, that's just, come on, man. You're not human. If you don't like choke up a little bit when you're reading that, cause you get to know the rabbit so well. Here, here's what I want to say. I'm a big fan of, anything for children that's done intelligently and what i mean by that is like i watch cartoons and -hmm. i try and watch good ones because i think that there is something not only to be learned but also something something highly enjoyable about well-crafted serious children's entertainment that doesn't insult anyone and it's not to say that uh like oh you're watching stuff for kids but in fact you're just enjoying something a piece of entertainment or fiction that's being told in such a way that children can enjoy it. Like it's not too old for them, but it's not at the exclusion of adults. And I think that's what's often uh, misconstrued. So like I was, in fact, Sean, just to plug another thing I like, I was, I'm watching Avatar, the last airbender, which was a Nickelodeon show in the aughts. And it's fucking tight. Like it's really good. And yeah, like, it can definitely be enjoyed by children. Um, there's no question, but not at the exclusion of adults. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that really like high class, high quality, uh, well-crafted children's entertainment should be its own genre. And if you're gonna, if you're really, if you're a parent and you want, and you want to cultivate, uh, what your kid reads and what they watch, this has to be at the top of the list. I mean, I think Watership Down, it really, in terms of children's entertainment, in my opinion, doesn't get any better than this. Yeah, and this is the perfect lead-in to then, like, go into stuff, like, if your kid can, you know, understand it and you can help them through if you're good enough of a teacher, then go right into the Odyssey, you know, go in, you know, lead them, put that, Watership Down is such a gateway drug that it leads to better stuff. 
And it's so sad to see now that like, like YA literature, this is just an old man yelling at a cloud, but it's <laughs> like, it's like the Hunger Games. It's Harry Potter. Harry Potter has its own merits, I feel like, but it's, it's not imparting lessons, I don't feel. The, the only lesson you get through it is like, stick by your friends. Your friends Harry, are good. <laughs> Harry Potter has one great virtue, um, and the virtue should not be diminished because it's so great. It has inspired millions and millions of people around the world to read, possibly a billion. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what the total readership of the Harry Potter books is, but if you get that many people reading, even if it's not the highest quality uh, fiction or story, you've done your bit for humanity. You know what I mean? Uh, I completely agree uh, because so many people look at reading as a chore that it's yeah. boring and unenjoyable because, you know, you can flip on Netflix, you can, you know, stream anything you want nowadays, but there's something enjoyable about, you know, reading or listening to a well-crafted story. And you're right, like, even if the kids that read Harry Potter do go on to, like, Hunger Games and then write to Stephen King and, you know, everything else after, like on that kind of level, like that kind of book junk food, mm-hmm. uh yeah, I think that does serve humanity because I roll my eyes every time somebody's like, "Oh, I don't read; it's boring." How do you how do you do it? I'm just like, I want to I want to give a quick Harry Potter story real quick. Um, I used to shit on Harry Potter, not on children reading it, but adults reading it. I used to be like, like I I, I had no respect for adults that read Harry Potter. I really didn't, um, and I would shit on them openly. One, I live in D.C., and one day I was on our metro train and. I was looking at this guy. This was coming home from work, 5 p.m., middle of rush hour. And I was looking at this middle-aged guy. He must have been 55, 56 years old. And he was your classic government bureaucrat. Uh, Just like in a suit that didn't fit well, schlubby, balding. Like We're talking like low-level bureaucrat, right? Mm -hmm. And he is reading the last few pages of the very last Harry Potter book on this train home from what I imagine must be an excruciatingly boring uh, government desk job. And he had the biggest shit-eating grin on his face that I've ever seen in my life. He was so happy reading the final few pages of the final Harry Potter book. And it completely reversed my opinion on these books where if, if it's brightening this guy's day, like Lord knows what his life is like, like the, mon- mm-hmm. the mundane like aspect of his life. But if it was bringing him this much joy, I'm not hating on it because it's not harmful. Yeah. And if anything, you know, maybe he's happy now that uh, since he finished reading it, he can try to connect with like his teenage like granddaughter or something like that yeah, that got really sure. into the books. Like I, I read them because it got me closer to the person I was dating. Not like in an sleazy, exploitative yeah. way, no, an but I was, way. <laughs> I was like, I was like, when I found out that she liked reading and she's like, Oh, I like Harry Potter. I kind of had that little knee jerk reaction, but I was like, look, how about I'll read the Harry Potter and I'll give you this book. I, I forget which book I gave her at the mm-hmm. time, but you know, at least, there was that connection where it's like, oh, well, you recognize each other. Like recognizes like, game recognizes game. And you know what? That's a great segue uh, into next week's episode because when I first uh, met my wife and I came over to her apartment for dinner, I noticed that she had a Gore Vidal book on her shelves. It was the Gore Vidal book 1876, which is the sequel to the book we're doing uh, next episode, which is Burr. Uh, so, Sean, this was a great episode. Um 
I really look forward to discussing Burr with you next week uh, because Burr is written by the ultimate sassy shit-talking author, Gore Vidal. Um, I can't yeah. wait for you to read this book because this guy is an absolute bitch. I mean that in the biggest compliment. Like He has no respect for anybody. His only goal in life is to write sassy shit, and he is he's not above criticizing the most... Um, revered americans in fact he does it for sport so sean mm. once again good episode uh and i can't wait to talk to you next time yeah i really enjoy this i hope uh the listeners get interested in reading watership down because i think even though it is really great i don't see it on anybody's like high school curriculum anymore like Ooh, why didn't i read why didn't i get this in high school i feel this should have been it, at the very least this should have been given to me like ninth grade like, Sean, just when, schools, when schools open back up, you should just go to your local high school and just start yelling at people. <laughs> just like yeah. go in the hallways and start yelling about it. I think that's going to work out really great for you. I don't think uh, being a middle-aged man and walking unannounced into a high school and start yelling at the top of my lungs is going to end well for me. So I'm going to hard pass on that one. I don't know, man. I really don't see a problem. All right, Sean, I'll talk <laughs> to you next time. All right, later, dude.